Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The vaccines that are the decisive factor in getting the world out of the pandemic have been called miraculous because the development process that used to take years took months. And the giant pharmaceutical companies were involved big time. Which is rarer than you might think, because developing vaccines is not a money spinner and Big Pharma is reluctant to get involved. So why was Covid so different? And what does this mean for developing other vaccines? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Over two episodes this week, we're taking a deep dive into the world of sick money. Today... Part 2. Profiting from the Pandemic I'm Billy Kember and I'm an investigations reporter at The Times. You may have heard Billy on yesterday's podcast, but if you didn't, you can still make sense of this episode. Billy has written... A book about the pharmaceutical industry, it's called Sick Money, The Truth About the Global Pharmaceutical Industry. Now, we talked about price gouging in a previous episode. But now we're going to talk about a set of circumstances and a set of incentives and practices which actually are much bigger and more significant. Beijing has confirmed the number of people who have died from a new type of respiratory virus in China has now passed 40. Almost 1,300 people now infected with the coronavirus and the authorities have put more cities under quarantine. Let's go back to the early 2020. There's the outbreak of this new disease, which we get to call COVID. It's spreading widely, and it becomes clear that there is going to be only one way to defeat it, and that's going to be a vaccine. So how quickly did a vaccine start being developed? So the answer to that question really depends on who you're looking at, what type of company or institution you're looking at. Public institutions, publicly funded facilities, academics, universities were very quick off the draw, if you like. And so too were a number of uh, small biotech companies, some of whom have now become household names in Moderna and, and BioNTech. Big Pharma, the sort of large pharmaceutical companies that everyone thinks of when you think of the pharmaceutical industry, they were much slower. They were much more reluctant to commit resources in the early stages of this, primarily because they'd been stung in the past. They'd committed resources to things that looked like they might cause a pandemic. And then they found that they hadn't and they hadn't had a market for their products. I want to come on to the past in a moment, but I just want to be clear uh, at the beginning what we're saying was that when the pandemic was identified, when it was identified what the virus was, 
almost immediately the genome was sequenced and the sequencing of the genome was then scientifically available and the first research institution started looking into vaccines and said we think we may have a way through this to be clear what you're saying is that was coming from small companies and publicly funded institutions in various countries it wasn't happening in the big pharmaceutical companies that's right and in fact biontech which was one of these companies that immediately put their other work to one side and, and sprung into focusing on this new virus when, as you say, the genetic sequence was, was published. They rang up Pfizer and said, would you like to partner with us on this in January? And Pfizer at that point said no. They didn't think it was going to turn into a pandemic and they didn't think it was worth diverting resources to at that point. And in other large pharmaceutical companies, I know that there were internal arguments about whether they should get involved that continued for months in the early stages of 2020 uh, as they prevaricated about whether they should disrupt the normal operations and, and really commit to developing a, a vaccine for this new virus. Even as cases were spreading all over the world and Italy was in lockdown, other countries were considering following suit, these companies were still prevaricating. And, and it's interesting if we look at who actually successfully did develop vaccines, that the big vaccine manufacturers, with the exception of Pfizer, were not among those who have successfully brought out vaccines for this virus. How quickly did a vaccine start being developed in the institutions in other words was it possible for a head start to be made on vaccine development before they were taken up by the pharmaceuticals the oxford team uh, we know sarah gilbert and some of the other scientists they have now become very well-known names they were working on a platform that was specifically designed to be adaptable to new threats and so they were able to to very quickly use that to produce a vaccine candidate for this new virus with some of the other vaccines, there was more of a stroke of fortune. Both Moderna and BioNTech would try to use a new technology, mRNA technology, to develop treatments for other things. And in BioNTech's case, they were looking at, at cancer and a little bit at, at influenza. And it, it is fortunate from a scientific perspective that that technology turned out to have efficacy for its use against COVID. Now, also to be clear, the reason why the big pharmaceutical companies weren't all that keen were they didn't think there was going to be a significant amount of payback for the investment in developing a vaccine for COVID. It comes down to money. They didn't think it would be worth their while to invest the, the large amounts of, of money that would be needed to develop a vaccine and bring it through clinical trials uh, to then potentially find a situation in which the outbreak had been brought under control through other means, through public health measures, and there was no market for their vaccine. They also didn't want to disrupt their normal operations where making drugs that are bringing in large revenue streams and a you know, crucial part of their businesses. And, and certainly companies had found in the past that not only had their efforts to combat other potential pandemics not been fruitful or not been profitable, that they'd actually disrupted their efforts to carry out their normal business. The reasons for the reluctance of pharmaceutical companies to invest time and money developing answers to emerging threats can be illustrated by what happened in 2014 and the spread of a truly terrifying virus. It's a story, however, that starts decades earlier. In 1976, a deadly illness erupted in a remote province of Zaire. Belgian nuns tending to the sick described horrific symptoms, followed by agonizing deaths. Perhaps the obvious example of a new or an emerging threat that threatened to spread more widely and ultimately didn't in recent history was the Ebola epidemic in West Africa in the 2010s. 
And Ebola was first identified in the 70s. It was identified near a river in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And between then and 2013, when this West African outbreak began, there had been periodic outbreaks, but they'd never become pandemics. And was a vaccine developed for it? So there were several vaccine candidates that had been developed in sort of academic contexts, of which one of the most promising had been developed by Canada's uh, public health agency. But they'd only done the early stage research. They hadn't gone into human trials, which is where drug development becomes really expensive, where you put it in through various phases of, of human trials to, to prove first safety and then efficacy. And they'd not been able to find a commercial partner to do that. It ended up being licensed to a, a small American company called New Link Generics in, in, I think, 2010. And they let it sit on the shelf. They hadn't done anything with it since then. This is the epicentre of the outbreak. In a city of a million, almost 50 new cases are reported every day. Liberia's tiny band of healthcare workers are throwing everything they have at Ebola. Researchers have found a vaccine against Ebola that protects monkeys from the deadly virus. It's slated for human trials early because of the dire situation in West Africa. The outbreak that had begun in December 2013 really began to spread the following year. At that point, there were also concerns that it might spread further afield, including to the US and to Europe. And Merck, the large American drug company, it's known as MSD, they ended up licensing that candidate vaccine from this company, Unique Generics, for $50 million or so, and then began to develop that vaccine by putting it into trials. At the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Anthony Fauci will oversee the trials. So you want to balance the need to get a potentially effective vaccine to the people who need it as quickly as possible at the same time that you structure it in a way that you can get some meaningful information as to A, whether it does work or not, and whether it does harm. Ah, so that's all great. There's a disease. There's a vaccine. So what's the problem? The problem here was that it was all a bit too late. So by the time uh, Merck was ready to put the vaccine into trials, the, the epidemic was really starting to be brought under control and they found it very difficult to find enough people to fill these trials with, to have enough cases where people were becoming infected with Ebola so they could test whether this vaccine worked. And it would take ultimately five years for that vaccine to be developed and to be ready to be brought to market and sold as a vaccine, by which point that West African epidemic was over. And does that mean that actually they weren't in a position to test the vaccine properly, although they developed it because, frankly, not enough people had the disease to test it upon? It was difficult to do trials and to get the numbers you need for statistical significance because of that. They ended up finding ways around that. But by the time that the vaccine was ready, there wasn't a market for it. And although there have since been small outbreaks of Ebola and the vaccine has been used. It's certainly not been a profit generation for Merck, a company which it should be said has been stung by perhaps the most prominent example of a vaccine not working out when they spent a huge amount of money developing an HIV vaccine uh, only to discover in trials that it actually appeared to make people more susceptible to catching it rather than as a preventative treatment. So Merck not only had the problem of not making money out of the Ebola vaccine, They'd also had problems with an HIV vaccine, which was counterproductive. But why did that have an impact on companies beyond Merck? I mean, it's okay, they'd been burned with it. But is it the case that the rest of the industry just looked at that and thought, hmm, not really keen to go there? So already by this point, what are called kind of outbreak vaccines, where you're trying to develop a vaccine for something that is already causing an outbreak, 
where it was difficult to persuade large companies to become involved because several of them had been stung over the years with other examples where something had looked like it might become a pandemic and then had petered out. More generally, the world of vaccines hasn't been that interesting for large drug companies until very, very recently, only in the last few years. Generally speaking, they were negotiating with governments for childhood vaccines and influenza vaccines. Governments were, were quite good negotiators and buying on large scale. So prices were relatively low and it just wasn't that profitable an area, especially when compared to things like oncology and cardiovascular disease and, and other areas where companies make the vast bulk of their profits. 30 odd years ago, there were around two dozen vaccine manufacturers in the world. Now, the market is dominated by just four big companies. It's Pfizer, GSK, the company that is most well known in Britain, Merck, which is the American company known in, in Europe as MSD, uh, and Sanofi, the French firm. There is also an Indian manufacturer, the Serum Institute, which is a big vaccine manufacturer, but isn't one that was generally selling to Western markets. We have a shrinking number of vaccine developers, some of whom have been burned trying to develop vaccines for emerging threats. So what was it that helped them overcome their reluctance and work so hard to develop a vaccine for COVID? What had essentially changed is the financial calculation had shifted because it became clear that this was going to be a pandemic and that governments were prepared to throw large amounts of money at this problem, both to pay for the development in a lot of cases and also to pay for the vaccines themselves. In the spring, the Trump administration began funneling $10 billion in federal funding to the private sector, mostly to hasten the hunt for a vaccine. It's called Operation Warp Speed. The US in particular committed billions to vaccine development. They paid for Moderna's vaccine to be developed in its entirety and in other cases handed out large orders for vaccines once they're delivered. So that removed the problem that we've sometimes seen in the past where companies were able to develop an effective vaccine, but there was then no market for it. They knew now if they were able to develop an effective vaccine, there would be a market. And in a lot of these contracts, they were signed on an at-risk basis, which meant that the governments would lose their money if the vaccine didn't work. Now, this is an incredibly good deal for companies, isn't it? Because countries had deep pockets. If they say, we're going to buy them no matter what, and you will still get paid if they don't work, that completely alters the economics of drug production, doesn't it? It does change it dramatically, yeah. It did vary between different companies. Pfizer didn't take any direct funding for all the development of its vaccine from the US government, although it was available because they thought it would be quicker. And I think they thought they could make more in the long run by not being tied to the US government on that. Although their partner BioNTech nevertheless took nearly half a billion from uh, the German government for development. Moderna's vaccine development was entirely funded by the US government. So it's an incredibly good deal for a company that had never previously brought a product to market and had been loss making throughout its existence. The AstraZeneca vaccine where they teamed up with the University of Oxford scientists is a slightly different category again because of the requirements, the terms of the deal set by those scientists in Oxford that this had to be sold on a not-for-profit basis, at least while the pandemic raged. But again, they had large amounts of pre-orders. Coming up, who managed to make a profit from the COVID vaccines? In 2004, Andrew Malkinson went to jail for life after a mother of two was raped by a motorway in Greater Manchester. But... Was it a miscarriage of justice? I couldn't find a way to demonstrate I was telling the truth and it just got worse and worse. 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story. A new series on the Stories of Our Times podcast with me, Emily Dugan, a reporter at the Sunday Times. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, given that some companies have rather different entries into this and have come to different kind of deals, what can we say about the profit there is to be made from vaccine sales during the global pandemic? So this is one area I think that has really taken the industry by surprise. And certainly it's in contrast to any previous outbreak vaccine or really vaccines in general. And COVID vaccines have proved to be very profitable for those companies able to sell them on a for-profit basis. Pfizer has booked sales that are approaching 40 billion in 2021 alone. They've said that their profit margin is in the 20s, I think in the high 20s. You can do the maths about how much money that is, but that revenue alone is almost equal to the company's entire revenue for last year. That's a, a very significant impact. And I think the estimates for the for the size of the market are that it will nearly $130 billion next year with booster shots and more supplies becoming available. And so at least in the near term, it's going to be a very profitable revenue stream. I think in the long term, as hopefully more vaccines are approved and are shown to be effective, there will be more competition and prices will come down to some extent, but there is likely to be a sort of large residual market from these annual or biannual boosters. Of necessity, almost all the vaccines we're talking about were actually bought by government rather than by anybody else. What can we say about the different prices that have been charged for different vaccines to those governments? I think one of the most controversial aspects of the COVID vaccine race is that these vaccines were sold early on in large quantities to essentially the highest bidders, the rich countries of the West, who were prepared to make these deals up front or sometimes on an at-risk basis, as, as we've discussed. And in doing so, swallowed up a large proportion of the world's supplies, in part because vaccines hadn't been a particularly exciting or large part of pharmaceutical industry for some time. Capacity was quite limited, especially in the early months. The UK was able to buy up several multiples of its population across different vaccines as it sort of hedged its bets about which ones would work while less well-off countries are struggling to begin vaccinating their populations. And also, some of these vaccines just cost a lot more than others of these vaccines. Yeah, that's certainly true. So although the AstraZeneca vaccine was sold on a not-for-profit basis, the prices that different countries have ended up paying for that have varied to some extent, and there was a bit of controversy that the South African government appeared to be paying uh, quite significantly higher prices than, than were being charged in Europe. And then the prices of the mRNA vaccines that are sold by Pfizer and by Moderna are you know, significantly higher than those being charged by AstraZeneca and have already increased when they uh, signed a new round of contracts this year. Those prices were between a fifth and a quarter higher than they had been 
a year earlier and taking advantage in part of as many countries' unwillingness to purchase the, the AstraZeneca vaccine because of this perception that it's uh, less effective and the policy that the rare blood clots connected to it received. Let's then move on to talk about the future of vaccines and what the experience of the pandemic might mean for the development of other vaccines. A lot of the vaccines that, say, somebody like me received as a child, I think were developed in the kind of spirit of we're all in it together to save millions of lives. We develop a drug, we get it on the market as cheaply as possible and give it to as many people as possible. And that's what we're trying to do increasingly you seem to be suggesting it's about the profitability of getting it to the market. The industry has changed. I mean, the, the sort of modern pharmaceutical industry emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War, and there was a real sense of public good and being moral corporations. The uh, development of penicillin during the Second World War was greatly sped up by companies' willingness to share their experiences with manufacturing and sharing breakthroughs and, and being able to scale that up. And then that was then sold quite cheaply for years afterwards. For a number of years, companies prided themselves on selling vaccines or treatments for what are often termed neglected or tropical diseases, diseases mainly prevalent in countries that aren't wealthy, but are either life-threatening or life-changing. And companies were sort of proud to sell these on a not-for-profit basis or even just to donate them as part of a sort of sense of the public good. What changed, I think, particularly from the 1980s onwards was companies became much more ruthless in how they assessed their research and development efforts and whether that was going to end in a product that was going to be worth a billion or two billion or three billion a year. And if they didn't think it was, they were more ruthless in terminating it. And that wasn't ultimately beneficial for a lot of companies either, because the truth about science is you often don't know what things are going to end up as. I mean, some of the most profitable drugs in the world were developed for other conditions or other diseases and didn't work out for those ones, but turned out to be effective for something else. And so there was a big slump in the R&D productivity. So they discovered that if you focus upon developing drugs for those diseases that, for example, we most discuss in the West as being threatening and which we see as threats to our individual health, I'm talking particularly about cancer, then in that case, the other things that you might need to do and that we might need as a collective, even more desperately, come second. And particularly with cancer, certainly in the US, there is a, a, pretty much any advantage, however small number of days or weeks it, it, it benefits the patient, there will be a market for it. And it's just the market cancer drugs that's developed and, and also partly a condition of, of how health insurance works in the US and who is paying once patients get to that stage. But as it is much more beneficial from a purely financial perspective to develop something that would be a treatment for, for cancer, even if it's only of limited benefit than it is to pour resources into an area where even if you have a, a wildly successful treatment, you're not going to make very much money. If we can imagine a global health actuary sitting over all this, what they would say is we have so created the market that we are pushing the profit and therefore the development into the area that actually delivers much less benefit across the mass of people. Yes, exactly. From a clinical perspective, the, the areas that are being invested are not necessarily those with the highest clinical need. Studies have shown that even within cancers, those cancers that are most prevalent in richer countries get much more funding than those, I think, like ovarian cancer that are more common in, in poorer countries. Similarly, the urgent development of new antibiotics in the face of growing resistance of bacteria to the ones we already have has been beset by the same financial problem. 
they're both essentially market failures in the current model of how the pharmaceutical industry works. It's a very good comparison with something like COVID. We've always known that there will be another pandemic and we've known the threat of antimicrobial resistance is there for some time now. And yet the industry and governments looking to incentivize the industry have struggled to come up with solutions to persuade people to invest in developing new antibiotics. So you need to come up with different funding models than the current sort of market-based system, potentially tens of millions of lives a year that will be lost if antibiotic resistance continues on the same trajectory. Billy, what you've described as a model which essentially isn't going to work very well for us in the future. You're an investigative reporter rather than, let's say, a policy wonk. But the suggestion that seems to come from what you're saying is that we just need much more concerted global governmental action over certain key interdependent issues. And this is one of them. Yes, I think that's certainly true. I mean, anything involving the pharmaceutical industry or healthcare spending is going to have to be uh, global. And it's also going to have to have the buy-in of the US because the US market is so dominant in setting the the incentives and, and providing the rewards for large drug companies. What we've seen with COVID vaccines on the financial side is, is really the opposite of that global cooperation. COVAX, this facility that was set up in part by the World Health Organization, was intended to be a tool through which countries would all bargain together with drug companies for their limited supplies of vaccines and they would then be shared out equitably. That hasn't really been used. Rich countries have been willing to engage in vaccine nationalism, if you like, buying up what they need for their own citizens at the expense of others. And in the early stages, efforts by countries who happen to have the manufacturing facilities within their borders to ensure that, that those stocks couldn't be exported. So certainly a lot of the AstraZeneca vaccine was that was intended to, to go to poorer or lower middle income countries, which was being made by a large vaccine manufacturer in India, was diverted to stay domestically because there was a ban put on, on exporting it for a period. So what we've seen with COVID vaccine is the sort of opposite of labor cooperation. It, it's been each country for itself. And I think if you look at the next pandemic and how can we better respond. That's the thing that, that needs to be avoided next time. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times Investigations reporter, Billy Kenba. Billy's book, Sick Money, The Truth About the Global Pharmaceutical Industry, is published tomorrow. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltug. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.